talking about love this morning. That's why your bulletins have love on it. Every once in a while I do that right. And other times you guys are like, why does my bulletin say Jeremiah? We're in the New Testament. Seriously, if you, if you all can reach out to John and Tam and let them know that we're praying for them, I'd greatly appreciate her phone blowing up. In the middle of my sermon, that's fine. I want to change gears here for a moment. Ask you a question. What are you, what are we, what is the church? Well, I mean, you take this a million different ways, but what are we known for? What are you known for? I'm not going to make you call it out because you might not be comfortable with what you're known for. But I want you to think for a moment, just like 10 seconds. Ask the question, if somebody had to know, if somebody knew you, what's the first words that would come to their mind? Just take 10 seconds, think about that. Now I want you to take a couple more seconds and I want you to ask the question, what is the church, the capital C church, all of Christianity? What do you think Christianity is known for? Okay, maybe some positives, probably a lot of negatives. Let's just be real. Now I want you to ask the last question, What's Hope Covenant Church known for? Ten seconds. Think about it. You probably thought of both positive and negative things for each one of them. I would guess that the most negative things that you thought of were either for the church, if you're kind of critical of organized religion, which I wouldn't blame you. We've done a lot of bad things. Um... Or, probably the majority of you, like me, thought of the worst things about ourselves. What am I known for? Maybe one of you thought, I'm known for being a child of God. And what a beautiful thing. But I think that the majority of us think of negative things. And so, I want to ask the next question, which is, what do we wish that we were known for? Now I'm going to cut out the capital C church out of that. I'm just going to ask you to think for a couple seconds. What do you wish you were known for? There's good answers. There's probably less good answers. Probably all of us went to both. I know when I was thinking about this, I thought back to when I was graduating from college. A lot of times when you're self-discovery, when you're thinking about what you want to be for the rest of your life, and I thought, man, I really want to be known as that person who's generous. It's a good thing, right? Known as a generous person. But what I really meant in that, that was my Christianese talking, um, what I really wanted to be known for was being rich. Right? wanted everybody to know how rich I was so that they would know how generous I was. And so now I want you to take a moment. This is the most important question. What do we wish our church was known for? 
Because that's what we are, right? We are just a collection of, of called people. That's what ecclesia, that's what I mean, church means in Greek. Called people, not a building. What do you wish that you were known for as a member of this congregation? Ten seconds. Do we wish that we were known for being a fun church? Right? Yeah? Mark? Yeah. Or a growing church? Yeah? I know a lot of us wish that we were known for being that church over there. Oh, they're growing so fast. What, what are they doing? Maybe, they're, maybe, we, maybe, I, maybe this is just me. Wish that we were known for good preaching? Right? That people follow the podcast from Arizona or whatever, and then when they drive through Chicago, they're like, we got to go to Hope for that good preaching. Right? I think a lot of churches wish that they were known for good preaching. Parishioners, too. Or great children's ministry, or awesome worship, good coffee, right? Like a hipster design, maybe some good lights, haze. It's smoke. But here's the thing. Whenever we're known for temporary things, I want you to hear this. Whenever we're known for temporary things, that is anything that is in this world, if we are known based on anything that's in this world, inevitably, those things will collapse and corrupt because everything's temporary. You want a good example of this? Every, I'm going to say every here, it's not true. This is hyperbole. The Old Testament does this all the time. Almost every megachurch pastor who drives a personality-driven church at some point is debunked. If they haven't been yet, they will be someday. Because if the church is founded on anything that's temporary, including the personality or abilities of one person, that person will always fall short because none of them are Jesus. Most of them are white men, and Jesus wasn't a white man. But it doesn't even have to do with that. They're just flawed. They're sinful. They're broken. Like, let's, let's just go through the list, right? Bill Hybels? Ugh. Yikes. Right? And then everybody looks at the church and they go, oh, well, that guy was one of the best pastors in America. He had the biggest church in America. He was one of the best pastors in America. Look how broken he is. Well, this whole thing must be a wash. And we thought, oh, it's going to stop with Bill, right? And obviously, if you don't know what that scandal was, that um, he had some sexual misconduct. But it doesn't just have to be that. Perry Noble had the fastest growing church in the country. The fastest growing church. New Spring Church in, in South Carolina, very close to where I was in school, my volleyball coach forced us once a month to go with him to New Spring. I got to know Perry really well. Perry was a gifted communicator. Gifted communicator. Also really liked alcohol. And eventually, because of the stress that he was under, trying to run the biggest, fastest growing church, the alcohol started to affect his family ministry, ministry to his own family, and eventually Perry was fired. In crisis. Just like two months ago. Another neighbor of ours. We have two megachurches, really big megachurches in Chicagoland. Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, the first original megachurch. James McDonald at Harvest Bible Chapel. 
of whom, I mean, we, we had their worship leader here over the summer, Harvest Worship Leader. I mean, amazing, amazing church, doing amazing ministry. James McDonald, what did he get busted for doing? Mismanagement of church funds. Obviously, some, now some, some uh, I want to say these are just accusations at this point, but accusations of misconduct, sexual misconduct. You know what I just realized? I'm sorry, I got to take a break. I did not, I totally missed. Tim, why don't you stop me? We have a children's message today. <laughs> um, so with the time remaining, I want to welcome our children to go with Tim. Um, it's anybody in grade school age. Tim's going to take care of them. Tim, you want to wave your hand? I'm sorry. This is what happens when we try new things. John just blows right through it. Um, so yes, great. So kids, going with Tim. Uh, thank you. They have stuff especially because they don't really care about James McDonald. So um, only Ronald McDonald. So, uh, sorry kids, <laughs> I'm not great. All right, see, this is what happens. And then the megachurch pastor gets up and forgets mi children's ministry and they kick him out, yeah. right? But seriously, they're all human beings. And eventually they get caught up in scandal or whatever and they, their church suffers greatly because their church is founded, they, they put their faith, I'm not saying everyone at the church, there are a lot of faithful people. The guy who played worship here, faithful. Faithful, faithful Christian. A lot of faithful people at these churches. But there is a percentage of every single church that's reliant on something temporary about the church. And when that stuff falls apart, the church falls apart. So if you want to be known for having good preaching, eventually your preaching will start to be bad. Either because your great preacher, whomever that person is who's a super gifted communicator that you bring in, you know, maybe they didn't even go to whatever, they don't have any education, but they man, they preach that fire sermons. No matter who it is, eventually they fall short and the preaching falls away. Your worship leaders quit or get caught up in scandal or whatever, and they have to leave. Your worship falls apart. Anything that you do that is temporary in the church will eventually deconstruct and break down and, and, and die. So that's why I go to the scripture to ask, what is the church supposed to be known for? Because if we make our own assumptions of what the church ought to be known for, what we wish our church was no, known for, or whatever, if we make our own assumptions about that, then eventually we will all fall short, we will all deconstruct, and the church will fall apart. All of that stuff is temporary. Uh, next week I'm going to be preaching on the, the, the actual letter that we've done in this whole sermon series, the letter to the church at Laodicea. In the book of Revelation, read it this week. Read all the letters this week. They're all good. Revelation 2 and 3. But it talks about the church of Laodicea, their problem was complicity. They thought that they could be self-sufficient. They thought that they didn't need the power of God in their life. They thought that they could just do it by themselves. That's what it's all about. That's what lukewarm means. I can do it by my own power. And so, any of these things that I listed, any of the things that that you thought of for yourself, what you wish you were known by for. Maybe some of you thought, maybe I wish I was generous, or I wish people thought I was generous. You don't even need to be it, right? You just wish people thought it. Whatever those things are, eventually they will deconstruct and break down, and you won't be known by those things. So instead, I want to go to the Gospel of John here, and I want you to hear where this story falls. This is in John 13. 
John 13 starts out with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He totally and completely lowers himself. He becomes their servant. Even though he's the son of God, he reduces himself to be their servant, and he washes their feet. The ultimate act of humility. And after that, he starts talking about how one of his disciples is going to betray him. We're going to talk about this on Good Friday. Betrayal. What it is like to be betrayed by a close confidant. And then Judas leaves. Judas scampers away. And we all know, if you read any part of the Bible, any part of the New Testament, every time Judas is mentioned, they're like, the one who betrayed Jesus, right? So we know that Judas is the bad guy, right, in the story, or at least that's how we read the text. Judas is the bad guy. He's the one who betrays Jesus. And so when Judas leaves, Jesus looks at the room and he goes, oh, it's time. It's time. And so then he branches in. He says one more thing. He starts, it says, when he had gone out, Judas, it says, Jesus said, now the Son of Man has been glorified and God will glorify him. He knows the time is short. It's all about to be over. He's had years to walk with these men, to teach them, probably many more people, 70 it says in the, in the book of Acts, to walk with his disciples, to teach his disciples, to teach them slowly because they're spiritual children. They needed to learn slowly, but his time is short. The hour is near. So if God has glorified him, God will also glorify himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. Just in case you were wondering, I want to make sure that you know I'm only going to be here for a little bit longer. And look, when you, will you look at me? You will look at me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment. He's saying, look, I'm about to go somewhere that you can't follow me. And Peter's like, I can follow you. And he's like, no, you can't. But that's in a little bit, Right? But he's saying, I'm going to go somewhere. You're not going to be able to come with me, and I'm not going to be able to teach you anymore. This is the end of my ministry teaching you things. Everything that I've told you, it's all going to come to an end now. And so he says, I give you this new commandment, as, as if he's saying, look, if, if I can just tell you one more thing, if I can just tell you one more thing before I go, if you just follow this, then you'll, all the rest of it will make sense. He can't summarize the Sermon on the Mount. He can't summarize it all. He has to break it down. He has to tell one more thing. Those last moments, have you ever been at the end of somebody's life with them and they lean over to you and they say, I just got to tell you this one more thing. That's the most important thing you ever hear from that person. He says, I got to tell you this one more thing because where I'm going, you cannot go. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. And just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He says it all comes down to that. Just love one another. All the rest of it is going to make sense if you just love one another. If you're known by your love. I posted the, the NLT version of this text, which is what we read in Immerse. I posted the NLT version of this text on our Facebook and our Instagram. It says that your, your love will prove to the world that you're my disciples. It's going to be the proof it's going to be what you're known by. That if you're known by your love, they'll be like, oh, those people follow Jesus. And if you're not known by your love, it doesn't matter what else you do. You won't be known by Jesus. Paul says, you know, if I have tongues to speak as angels, but I don't have love, I have nothing. 
Even if I die for my faith, but I don't have love, I have nothing. The New Testament understands this, but I think that churches now, because we want to be seen of as being welcoming to kids, not that we're not, I think that that's part of being loving, being welcoming to kids. I think part of being loving is speaking good truth from the pulpit. Part of being loving is worshiping with abandon. But if we try and focus on the symptoms of love instead of the source, it's all worthless. It's all meaningless and pointless. But love gets a bad rap in English. Love gets a bad rap in English because we don't understand the word. All we know is that it's what God wants us to be known for. But just as Dominique Gilliard said when he preached here not long ago, if you love God like you love donuts, you're missing it. How many people you know talk about the things that they love? Any Enneagram 8s out there? We talk about the things that we love all the time. Oh, I love this movie. Just saw Instant Family. All of you should go out and see it. I love it. But I hope that's not the same love that I use to describe God. And you all. That I love my wife like I love a movie, that would be a problem with our marriage. I should talk to somebody about that. So I want to present you with four words in Greek for love. This is a, a, a beautifully, it's the only recording of C.S. Lewis reading his own work that we have is him reading his sermon, I don't know, lecture on the four loves of the New Testament. The first one is storge. Say storge. Or storge. I know, sounds, sounds like a Swedish word, doesn't it? Storge. Storge is affection. And it has a broad definition, but basically it's love that you have for your children. Okay? It's the love that you have for your children or your parents or your brother or your sister. It's biological imperative love. It's love that says we need to carry on the species. Sometimes people can feel this love for a dog or, or another type of uh, animal that I had a, a, my hospital chaplain uh, supervisor had love like this for a parrot. Those things live forever. She had known this parrot for like 40 years. She loved that parrot. Storgi, love, affection. The second one... Okay, go to the next slide, please. Thank you. It's philia. Say philia. Philia means friendship. It's the love that you have for a friend. It's kind of like storgi, but it's without the biological imperative. It's the love that you have for your best friend. You might say that they're like a family member, but oftentimes that's a little bit different. It takes longer to get there. You're born with storgi. You get philia over time. Go to the next one. Eros. Say Eros. We talk about making love. That's Eros love. Romance. Sexual attraction. It's the love that one has for their spouse. Eros. It's romance. It's beautiful. See, all three of these loves have something in common. They're not agape, which is the word that's used here. Go to the next one. See, agape is a totally different type of love. Go back one. Uh, oh, now it's working. Oh, it, there it is. Say agape. agape. 
Agape is a totally and completely different type of love because agape has nothing to do with your emotions. Hear that again. Agape is a completely different type of love because agape has nothing to do with your emotions. See, philia and storgi and eros, they're all loves that you feel. Agape is not a passive love that you feel. It's an active love. It's a love that you do. And I think that when we reduce all of these things, as well as our love for donuts, which isn't, doesn't even have a word for Greek, or our love for pizza or whatever, if we reduce all of those things down into one thing, we say, I love my kids, and I love my dog, and I love pasta, and I love my wife, and I love my best friend, and I love my church. We dilute it. We miss it. That's why in the King James, they don't even use the word love for agape. They use the word charity, which people just are like, well, why is that? I mean, then you read it in the, in the wedding sermon, and you're like, charity is patient. Charity is kind. And people are like, what's that all about? Charity? You're being charitable? But they literally changed the word because they said, we don't want you to confuse this. Jesus says they don't know you. They will not know you because you're all great friends or that you're biologically inclined to one another or because you all have weird and romantic infatuation. We're not that kind of church. It says it will know you by your active love because you non-emotionally, not because of self-preservation, but through, not because you're going to get something in return or because you romantically are infatuated with one another, but because you serve one another self-sacrificially. First, before you feel anything. That's actually what God calls us to be known by in this text. What Jesus, the Son of God, says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. He's not saying, I give you a new commandment that you have to like everybody at church. I think a lot of us get caught up on that. We're like, well, I can't do that because... I got some beef with so-and-so. I'm not saying I give you a new commandment that you get it, right? Not to keep going. You already understand it, conceptually. But as soon as we stop thinking about agape as something that we do and something that we feel, which is a natural part of thinking about the word love, it's just something you're naturally inclined to, and not that you have to actively pursue. As soon as you start thinking that way, you lose some of this love. Agape, for Christians who are all in, that's their call, first and foremost. That's their primary purpose on earth, is to agape, actively love the rest of the world, but first, to love each other. Because Jesus says, if you can't even love people who are called and inclined to love you back, how are you going to love your enemies as yourself? How are you going to pray for those who persecute you? You can't even love the people in the church who are supposed to be loving you too. Says this is, and this is where it gets complicated, right? Because before the betrayal, Jesus doesn't talk about this in this way. But after the betrayal, after the very person who he, his enemy, he then looks at this and he goes, look, we're actually called to do something radically different and to be known for something radically different than the rest of the world. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, would that be compelling to people in your life? That's the real question, right? 
Would that be compelling to be known by love? Because I think if all, any of us are honest, it's, it's pretty hard to be known by love. Like if, if you love people so radically that that's the first thing that people, pops into people's mind, not what you look like, not how they met you the first time, but just, oh my gosh, that person, right? Every time you come up in conversation, like, oh man, like Naila, like she just loves people. Am I right? Oh man, Karen, she just loves people. Jim, he just loves people. Not where you work or what you do, but that you just love people. If that's the first thing that comes to people's mind, that becomes a very compelling witness. And if I'm being honest, that's probably where we've fallen short the most in Christian history. The place that we've fallen short the most is in our love for one another and our love for the world. We start to be known by other things. We start to be known as the state church, the church that that runs the government, the church that I go to. We start to be known by our buildings. Oh, that church on the corner. But I want to ask you, I'm not saying that we're there yet. I'm saying that this is what being an all-in church looks like. I want to ask you, if somebody that you knew who did not know our church walked in that door and saw a group of people who radically loved one another, radically, radically, radically loved one another, Would it matter how good our worship was? Would it matter how good our preaching was? Would it matter how pretty our stained glass is? I think they would be distracted by the light that's in us, so much so that they wouldn't even remember that we had stained glass. I simply want to ask you this. Would joining a community like that where everyone gave the shirt off their back for one another, for anyone else in the community without thought, where people would loan each other money, and it's not really a loan, it's a gift, because we just make sure that your own, right? Dominique said you don't ever stop fighting for your own. When, you, when it's your own, it's not even loaning, right? It's just giving. when we made sure that nobody was struggling financially or emotionally or without the help that they need, without the child care that they need, wouldn't that be compelling? And wouldn't it be even more compelling if we weren't all friends? I know that that sounds, like, harsh, but that's the thing, is that, like, as soon as these other loves, as soon, like, if, once you're all related which is like it was in my home church, like everybody was related to everybody. Once you're all related, agape love seems less like agape and more like storge. Oh, well, of course they're praying for Steve, like half of them are related to him. When everybody's friends and everybody looks the same and everybody votes the same and everybody likes the same things, and the whole church gathers because they just love college. Like, then it just becomes philia. Because you're just friends. Well, of course they took care of him. They're his friend. And if everybody was just coupled up and just caring for their spouse, you wouldn't be surprised. I gotta live with that person. Of course I gotta love them. As long as sleeping on the couch. 
you're romantically attracted to somebody, it's not that compelling when you love them. But what if none of those things was present? Not a single one. You walked into this church and, and, and you saw people radically loving one another, washing each other's feet, taking their shirt off their back for one another, whatever it needed, and you said, who's that person? You said, I never met him before. They're not my friend. They're not my brother. They're not my sister. I'm not attracted to them. I just love them. First action, then emotion. I love them first. That when a new person walked in here and they wanted to go to cafe, that every single person was like, oh, I got to sit with them. I'm going to love them so good. That's the thing. If you don't start with love, you can't be all in. Because at some point, self-preservation will take over. At some point, self-preservation will get in the way. And I'm not saying that you should stay in relationships where you're being physically or emotionally abused. Don't hear that. That's not what God has for your life. But if you don't love people first with action, if you don't love people first with action, then no one will be surprised. That's the thing. I think that most people who would walk in here would go, they're all friends. They've known each other for years. And so that's why we like sitting in cafe together. We sit in cafe together because we're all friends. Not because we are like, Jesus called us to love and doesn't really care if I dislike him. See, you know why people don't go to church? Now I'm going to be done here. People don't go to church, in my humble opinion. Because today, people are less comfortable than they have ever been in, in the past with dissonance, with hypocrisy. People are less comfortable today with hypocrisy than we've ever been before. So people go to church because they're educated enough we live in a very highly educated society. They're educated enough that they come in here and they go, hey, I've heard on the internet or on the preacher on the TV or whatever that you're supposed to live differently as a result of knowing Jesus. I've heard that. But then they go to a church, even our church probably, and they walk in and they look around and they go, huh, all these people seem just like the people out there. All these people just like the people that they like. All these people just love the people they're related to. I, I really don't see the return on investment with a relationship in Christ. I really don't see the return on investment in being part of a community. It's a very logical thing to think. If we're not changed by being here, then why be here? It's purposeless. See, if we don't start living like we're kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of God, that we were once dead in our sin, but we've been resurrected out of it by the power of Jesus Christ, then how the heck is anybody going to believe us when we say that we have been? It's very inauthentic. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect. The truth is, all of the perfect Christian stuff, that melts away when you love people well. People are not concerned about your petty sin when you start loving people like I'm talking about loving people. 
Like you taking a kid from, from, from like, a, you know, you taking a family that shows up at your door and they're just like, hey, I just need somewhere to stay. And you take them into your home. Nobody's worried about like, if you cussed at church. Like they're probably not concerned about it. They're probably not going to question whether you've been changed and resurrected with Jesus if you are living actively like you have been. Nobody's going to care how irreverent you are. It's not going to matter because they're going to see Christ lighten you and they're going to go, yeah, that person's nuts. When our lives make sense to non-believers, there's something wrong. When people walk into this building or any other church building in this area and they go, yeah, everybody in here, just like everybody out there, not everybody in here is perfect, not everybody in here is sinless, but everyone in here, they're living for themselves. They're living for Friday, just like the rest of us. They're living to get the next paycheck. They're living to this and that and with, for the next promotion. It means that we're consumers of faith rather than actors of faith. And let me tell you something. We're going to reinforce the message that our culture wants to send. See, the, culture that our, the, the message that our culture wants to send, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, not in the Bible necessarily, this is just my opinion, the message that I perceive culture sending to our youth and, and others, to our adults, is that we live in a pluralistic society. Whatever you believe is just, that's fine for you. However you act, that's fine for you. You just do you. Don't apologize for a thing. They're all the same. Doesn't matter which God you pray to. You worship whoever or whatever you want. You want to worship yourself? Worship yourself. It's fine. As long as it helps you get through hard times in your life, that's what church or religion is for. Help you get through hard times. And we reinforce that message. But the good news is, we don't have to reinforce it. We can say, we believe in a God who is unlike any other God that has ever been talked about. A God who puts on human skin to die for people a different message it can't be responded to the same way as other faiths when your God washes people's feet you can't then go out and not do it otherwise you don't believe in that God people say well John isn't it just intellectual assent whoever believes in me shall not perish yeah but what does believing in Jesus look like does believing in Jesus mean that you believe in him so much, you believe that he was the son of God, that when he tells you to do something, you're like, nah, not for me. See, agape is a choice. It's not an emotion. So if you're a person who's like, I have not experienced that spiritual thing yet, I haven't gotten that spiritual high yet from worship, you know, I listen to Stephanie Gratzinger from Bethel Music and she talks about how you've got to just pray until you feel it. Yeah, sure. But you don't have to wait to love people for that. Because agape is a choice. It's not emotional. In the same way that we talked about giving all in should be not emotional, I shouldn't have to like turn down the lights and tell you how great it is to give to the church. You should just want to do it. In the same way, loving, serving one another, being a part of these ministry teams, and, and not just these ministry teams, going above and beyond. Hey, compassion was number six on my list, but it doesn't mean I don't help with beds. 
Hospitality was number seven on my list because I'm an introvert, but I'm going to die to myself because this person has the same interests as me and I want to make sure that they feel welcomed. Whatever it is, oh, 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 you know what? I just don't have time for any of these. All right, cool. How's that working out for you? Feel all in? It's a scandal, our relationship with Jesus. It's a complete and utter scandal that God would do something like this for us. And when he had to summarize it all, he said, look, just love each other. Actively. Love first. Ask questions later. 